The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. All right. Well, we are in the midst of a series that we've been in called Who Is This Man? Uh, And the idea of this series is we're looking at Jesus' impact on our world. That this guy who lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago, walked for about 33 years, has somehow lived such a life that it has implications to us even to this day. And so we've looked at some of the ways that that's happened, some of the ripple effect that Jesus' life has had in our world over the past few weeks. So a few weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus shaped how we view those that are on the margins of society. Uh, The week after that, we looked at Jesus' influence in in academia, on the life of the mind and the intellect. Uh, Last week, we looked at how how Jesus really turned humility, which at his time was was kind of a vice, and he turned it so that even in our day, we look at humility, regardless of your religious belief, really as a virtue. We say, that's something you should strive for. We should try to be humble people. That's a result of Jesus' work. Today, in a rather timely fashion, we are looking at Jesus' impact on politics. Okay? Fasten your seatbelts. All right? We are going to break every social more that there is. We're going to talk about religion and politics. All right? So just get ready to get uncomfortable. All right? It's just going to happen. Uh, my, my, my goal is, is to uh, offend no one by offending everyone. All right? So, so if you're ticked off at one point, just know someone else will get ticked off later. All right? So you just hang in with me. All right? That's, that's the idea. Uh, we actually seriously I think we'll make it through just fine this morning. 9.30, there was no bloodshed. Um, so th- there might be some angry emails. I don't know. But, but there's no bloodshed. So we'll get there. Um, so let me, as, as we get into it, let me just kind of share the, the Gabe Casper journey into politics. All right. So, so it started for me. I, I realized there was a political realm when I was in high school. Uh, and, and I realized it because I was really involved in, in the Detroit punk scene. Uh, as a typical path for most pastors. And, and so... Um, so I'm in the Detroit punk scene, and a big theme in, in punk rock culture is, is this idea of anarchy, that, that there should be no government, there should be no control, it's just people, let's just go, whatever we want to do, martial law, let's, let's make it happen. And so, so that's kind of this idea, and so here I am, this little suburban kid, and I'm reading like Noam Chomsky and like Che Guevara, I'm like, man, let's revolution, baby, and I'm drawing little anarchy symbols on all my, my papers and stuff, and I was just like, this is just a dork, right? And, uh, and I remember... Uh, I came back from seeing uh, one of my favorite bands at that time. They're called Anti-Flag. And, uh, and my, my sweet, conservative, Midwestern pastor's wife, mom, came up to me and she goes, Now, Gabe, Anti-Flag, I'm not sure I like what they're about. <laughs> and I said, Well, mom, that's because you're part of the system. The man's got you down, right? And... Uh, I know the good Lord is going to pay me back tenfold when my kids are teenagers. Um, but, but my mom, then she goes, you know, being a pastor's wife, she goes, well, what do you think Jesus thinks about you being an anarchist? I said, oh, mom, he loves it. He's an anarchist too. Uh, which actually there's a whole school of theology on that, but we're not getting into that today, all right? And so my mom brilliantly said, oh, really? Well, what do you think about this? And she pointed me to Matthew 22, the text we just read for today. Now, I'll tell you that story to point out a couple things. First of all, uh, pastors' families are as weird as you thought they were. Uh, secondly, uh, my mom was right. That Matthew 22, if, if we want to say, how does Jesus engage the political world? What, what does he speak to? What does it mean for us as we engage? Matthew 22 is the place to go. That's really where we dig into Jesus' approach to politics. And what we'll see is Jesus actually changes how we engage the political realm by refusing three things. He changes how we engage the political realm by refusing three things. He refuses political simplicity. 
He refuses political complacency, and he refuses political primacy. Okay? He refuses political simplicity, political complacency, and political primacy. All right? So let's get going. Let's dig into it. Look with me at our first couple verses, Matthew 22, 15 to 16. It says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. All right, now the gospel writer Matthew here is, is really cueing us into a bunch. All right, so first of all, he's saying the Pharisees, they want to they entangle Jesus. They're trying to trick Jesus. So what do they do? They send their disciples, and they send them, did you guys catch that in verse 16, along with the Herodians. Now, that's actually key for us to note, because at that time, the Pharisees and the Herodians were on opposite ends of the political spe- spectrum. So you had the Pharisees on the one end who, who hated Roman occupation of Israel. They said, Rome shouldn't be ruling over us. Israel, we're an independent nation state. We should be our own thing. We hate that Rome's ruling over us right now. And then on the other side, you had the Herodians who were also Jewish, but they loved Rome because it was through Rome that they got their power. It was through Rome that they ended up becoming a a kingly class. And so it's these two opposite ends of the political spectrum get brought up to Jesus and they want to ask him a question. They want to set a trap and see where he fits in in the political landscape. And so they ask him this question, verses 17 and 19. Look with me. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now, they asked Jesus if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, this is a, a tricky question for a variety of reasons. Okay? So, so first of all, we know that the, the coin that, that Jesus asked for is a denarius. And that denarius that was actually that was used for a very specific tax in that day. It was a head tax. Um, and, and really, so it wasn't a tax on their properties, it wasn't a tax on their income, it was a head tax. And what that meant was the Roman Empire said, you know what, we're going to start charging people for the gift of being a subject of Caesar. That was it, right? So they just said, hey, you get to be ruled over by us, pay us for it. And so that's what they did. And so it's important to know that 25 years before this moment, when the tax was uh, instituted, when it began, 25 years earlier, uh, there was an armed revolt against this tax led by a man named Judas the Galilean. And what Judas the Galilean did is he tried to rally all of the Jews, and he said, we're not going to pay the tax, let's, let's revolt against all this. And he took a group of armed men, and they went into the temple, cleared it out, and Judas the Galilean sought to bring about the kingdom of God. Anyone here ever heard of Judas the Galilean? You know why? Because the Romans snuffed him out, right? They, 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 they crucified him, nailed him to a cross. That was it. Now let's think about this moment. Jesus is a Galilean. Literally a chapter ago, cleaned out the temple. And all he's done for the last three years is talk about the kingdom of God and bringing about the kingdom of God. And so the only difference between Judas the Galilean and Jesus the Galilean is where he stands on this tax. And so really what the Herodians and the Pharisees are asking Jesus is, are you a revolutionary? Are you here to start the revolution? And so there's a lot at stake in how Jesus answers this question, right? Because if he says, no, don't pay the tax, man, he's got a ton of followers. He's got a ton of followers. He's in Jerusalem, man, revolution is on, homie. 
they get going and they'll get crushed by Rome. But if he says, yes, pay the tax, anyone who's ever heard him talk about the kingdom of God will think that he didn't really mean what he was saying. Anyone who's ever heard him talk about the kingdom of God will just be like, oh, he was just blowing smoke. He didn't mean it. And some of you ask, why? Why would him saying yes uh, to paying the tax mean that, uh, that he didn't really believe in the kingdom of God? Well, the only reason we would even ask that is because we live in the 21st century and we've been through the Enlightenment and we kind of look at that through post-Enlightenment eyes. And so oftentimes, when we think about the kingdom of God, we think about it sort of as like a, a private religious experience, that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it's maybe about inner peace or, or just sort of living in kind of communion with God and that sort of thing. Or maybe we think about the kingdom of God as like heaven as some place you go to when you die. But listen, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, that's not what he meant. He wasn't talking about some privatized, abstract, overly spiritual reality. So the Bible is very clear that the kingdom of God is real. Like, it's, it's, it's real. Like, you can see it. That the kingdom of God deals with actual poverty and real injustice and real suffering and real hunger. And so whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about something that's real and tangible, something that we'd actually be able to see with our eyes. He's talking about a real change. And so if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, he can't possibly be talking about the kingdom of God. He can't possibly believe what he's saying, and so he'll lose the people. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, he's got a revolt on his hands that's going to end very poorly. And so it's a tight spot, right? Jesus is in a very tight spot. They ask him a no-win question, right? It's kind of like, do you remember in junior high, like that kid comes up to you and he goes, hey, so do your parents know you're stupid? How do you answer, Right? You say yes, you admit to being stupid. You say no, he says, oh, so you just haven't told them yet, right? You can't, you can't answer it. There's a no-win question. But Jesus finds a way around it. Jesus answers it brilliantly. Answers it brilliantly. Look with me at verses 20 to 22. And Jesus, holding this coin, says, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so right here, Jesus refuses political simplicity. He refuses political simplicity. They, these guys, they want a simple answer from Jesus. Should we pay the tax, yes or no? Are you for Caesar, or are you against him? Are you for the Pharisees, or are you for the Herodians? Jesus, are you a Democrat, or are you a Republican? Are you conservative, or are you liberal? They want Jesus to give a simple answer, yes or no. And Jesus refuses to do that. Refuses to do that. I remember uh, in college I took a course on, on Christianity and politics. Uh, and in this book, or in this, back, in this course, we, we read books from folks all across the, the political spectrum that, that would self-identify as Christians. So we read from folks who are on the Christian right. And they said, you know, they talked about issues like abortion and marriage and personal, personal liberty, right? And they couldn't possibly fathom how any good Bible-believing Christian could vote for anyone but a conservative Republican. And then we read books by folks on the Christian left. Yes, that exists, Texas. And, uh, and, and they talked about how, uh, how care for the poor and racial injustice and caring for God's good creation. And they couldn't fathom how any good Bible-believing Christian could vote for anyone but a liberal Democrat. Now listen. Does Scripture talk about life beginning at conception, what marriage is, and that there's personal liberty for people? Of course it does. Does Scripture talk about care for the poor and racial injustice and caring for God's good earth? Of course it does. See, it's funny 
we, we get so locked into these things. I was talking with a friend of mine who's, who's from the UK, and he shared with me, he's been here for a couple of years, and he shared with me, he's like, it's so interesting, Gabe, like in the U.S., generally, if you're a practicing Christian, the assumption is that you're conservative politically. That's just kind of the, the going assumption, right? He said in the U.K., if you're a practicing Christian, the assumption is that politically you lean more like a socialist, right? So like our cultures aren't that different, but, but for those of us of the same faith, depending on where we're at, we have pretty different political ideas, generally speaking, right? We all, there's exceptions. And so Christians, let me just tell you, avoid political simplicity. Avoid political simplicity. Don't do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself. Don't place him in, in your little political camp. Don't reduce him. Don't simplify him. He's much more complicated than that. Don't simplify him. And some of you may be thinking, all right, Good job, Pastor. I've been kind of sick of the overly politicized things going on. I'm sick of looking at my Facebook feed. I just want this all to be over with as Christians. Let's just pull out of politics altogether, and we'll just focus on spiritual things. All right, let's just do that. Jesus doesn't allow that either. He doesn't allow that either. He's against political complacency too, right? We see this in his answer. He asked for a coin. And I don't know if you noticed it when I read the text, but he asked for a denarius. Now, a denarius, we actually, we know a lot about denariuses. We have them. They're in museums around the world. You can look at them. You can Google it if you want. Uh, and on the denarius that, that he would have asked for at this time in history, uh, he says, whose image is on it? Whose inscription is on this coin? And we actually know what it would have, ha what it would have had on there. Uh, and, it, and it would have had the image of Tiberius Caesar. He was the Caesar at the time. Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription would have said, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. So it would have said, it would have had Tiberius Caesar's face and said, Son of God, high priest. Jesus holds that up. And what does he say? He says, Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. And so what's he saying here? Jesus asks, Whose image is on the coin? And the Greek word there is icon. And so he's saying, listen, Caesar's image is actually on his coin. Like, this guy's face is actually on here. And so give to him what's his. It's his money. Who cares? Give him his money. It's got his face on it. Give it to him. But then he says, give to God that which has his image on it. Now, what has God's image on it? Caesar's image is on the money. What has God's image on it? Human beings. You. And so this is actually the first, like, idea of limited government ever coming in the entire world. See, before then, it was like, that's why he's called the Son of God, that this, there's just this inherent intertwinement uh, between what they believed about the gods and what they believed about the state. It just, everything was together. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. State doesn't have control of your life. God, the creator, he's the one who has control. And so this is revolutionary. Jesus says, fine, give Caesar his taxes, but don't give him your ultimate allegiance. Give Caesar what's in his image, but give God your image. Give God your ultimate allegiance. The government, the nation does not receive that. Your creator does. Your creator is the only thing that gets your ultimate allegiance. And Jesus actually goes even further than what meets the eye here. You see, when the, the Pharisees and the Herodians ask if they should pay the tax to, to Caesar, uh, the word they use for pay is this word give, like give a gift. Like, should, should we give this gift to Caesar? And Jesus, when he answers, he actually changes the verb in the Greek. And he says, he doesn't even use that word give. He says, no, you should render unto Caesar. And that word render means to pay back what you owe. Or not, pay, I'm sorry, give him what he deserves, not pay back what you owe. Give him what he deserves. 
And so what exactly does a tyrant like Caesar deserve? Does he deserve his money? I guess. But does he also deserve a little pushback? Does he also deserve a little critique too? The brilliant New Testament scholar N.T. Wright comments on Jesus' answer here, and he says this. Jesus is refusing to say no and thus encourage a revolt, and he refuses to say yes and just be a patriotic, good, quiet, tax-paying citizen. You see, Jesus is refusing political complacency and political primacy. You can't just opt out of the messiness of politics, but it can't be number one in your life. You can't let politics in the nation be ultimate in your life. This is an incredible answer. It's revolutionary. It's the first time limited government has ever brought up in history. And we see in verse 22 in our text that people are blown away by it. Look at this. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And so in the narrow sense, what Jesus does here, he says, in the narrow sense, Jesus says, I'm not political. I'm not going to endorse a system or a party, anything like that. But in the broad sense, Jesus says, I'm incredibly political. I'm bringing about the revolution to end all revolutions. I'm bringing about real, tangible change. I'm bringing about the kingdom of God. And so somebody say, all right, well, now how does that play out? If this is what Jesus is saying, how does that play out for us? All right, so there's this really important doctrine. So if you weren't falling asleep before, now I said doctrine. Just someone get that guy a blanket, all right? Uh, but there's really important doctrine called the, the two kingdoms or the two realms. Uh, and it works like this, uh, if we're going to understand it. So first of all, we need to understand that God, we would say, is sovereign, that he's in control of all things, that everything that happens in this world happens under his control. And so that includes whatever government is in power, whether in our nation or in another nation. That God's in control of that. And so God, through that, we call that the left-hand kingdom. So these sort of earthly governments that we have, we call it the left-hand kingdom. And through the left-hand kingdom, God maintains relative order, justice, peace, and human flourishing through what we call the kingdom of the left, right? Like, if there really was no government, it would not be a good thing, right? We need at least relative peace, relative justice through these things. And so that's kingdom one, kingdom on the left. Tracking with me? All right? And so that's why we as Christians, we care about that. That's why we should pay taxes. That's why we should vote. That's why we can serve in the military. That's, that's why we do pray for our leaders, because God rules through the left-hand kingdom, maintains relative peace, relative justice that way. And so we render unto Caesar. We give him his coin. Cool? But then we recognize that Jesus was serious when he talked about the kingdom of God and that it's a real thing, and that he actually launched that as a reality in this world. And as Christians, we've been transferred into that kingdom. And that one day, Jesus is going to bring that about fully. And that when he returns, there's going to be actual peace forever. There's going to be actual justice forever. That which is broken is going to be made right. All nations are going to bow down to our true kingdom. There's not going to be this distinction. This is the right-hand kingdom. It's the kingdom that is now, but not yet. And so as Christians, we've actually been transferred from the kingdom of the left to the kingdom of the right, to the kingdom of God. And so ultimately, we live for that kingdom. We live for Jesus' kingdom. We live for God's kingdom. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. You seek my stuff first. You seek what I'm about first. And so that's what we do as followers of Jesus. But we see clearly in this text that being transferred into that kingdom of the right does not remove us from engaging this kingdom on the left. But in fact, it shapes how we engage the kingdom on the left. We do it as citizens of God's kingdom. And when we do that, when we get that, it actually helps us avoid both political complacency and political primacy. All right, so let me just break down a couple examples on what that's looked like in, in history. Uh, so one, 
uh, Nazi Germany, okay, right? So Nazis come to power in Germany, which at that time was a country filled with Christians. How does that happen? Well, what happened is Christians said, oh, well, that's kingdom of the left. Not really worried about that. We'll just keep going to church on Sunday. We'll just focus on our own personal piety and not really worry about any sort of systemic evil that's creeping up. We're going to do our own thing. That's political complacency. Political complacency doesn't work. They, they, they failed to recognize that being in God's kingdom leads them to engage the left-hand kingdom for the good of others. But then, this doctrine also helps us avoid political primacy. Uh, I remember I was, I was working at a church in Minnesota uh, several years ago, and I had a conversation with a lady, and she started telling me, she's like, well, we all know that Hurricane Katrina happened because our country has abandoned God and the Constitution. And I was like, I just don't think that's how that works. Um, I'm no expert on God, but I just don't think it is. And, and, and I said, I'm also not that sure that God's super concerned about the Constitution. And she was just taken back. She goes, you mean you don't think it's inspired? I was like, lady, there is one thing in this world that is inspired by God, and that's the Bible. That's it. But what happened? What happened was this lady... Her nationalism, her patriotism, her politics became of such primacy that she equated a man-made document with God's living word. And so she failed to recognize that as, as Christians, we first live in this kingdom. We live in a different kingdom. This is an ultimate for us. And so one of the biggest idols in our nation, and for us, especially in Texas, is our nation. It just is. And so listen, rulers... Political parties, countries, constitutions, governments are not primary. They do not get your ultimate allegiance, Christian. Only Jesus gets that. He's number one. And yet, we're still called to live faithfully as citizens in the country that God's placed us in. And so how do we do that? You say, okay, that's all well and good. Where are you going to land, Gabe? Where are you going to land? How do we do that? We do that with the posture of God's kingdom. With the posture of God's kingdom. Now, what's the posture for, for, of God's kingdom? Well, let me tell you it through a story. Uh, 2012, I moved here. I started working at our mother church, Axe Church in Lakeway. And uh, you, you may remember uh, that 2012 was also an election year. Uh, and it was just as much fun as this one. Although not quite as fun. Uh, this has been exceptionally interesting. Uh, but at any rate... Uh, and, and so I'm working at, at Axe Lakeway kind of as an associate pastor at that time. And as we drew nearer to uh, the election, I noticed kind of the, uh, the language on Facebook statuses was getting pretty spicy. And, and so I thought, well, hey, you know, as a pastor, I should really help my folks learn how to engage the electoral process as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And so I wrote a little article uh, for Axe Lakeway's little e-newsletter uh, that, that they do. And I titled the article, Your Guide to Voting in the 2012 Election. Uh, now, it was like a tongue-in-cheek title. I obviously didn't endorse a candidate or policy or anything like that. It was just a tongue-in-cheek title. And all I said in this article was this. This is it, right? I said, as Christians, our sole determining factor in how we vote is for love of the other. That's it. We vote for the benefit of other people. We vote out of love for others. Because all that we do as Christians should be done out of love for others. That's what I wrote. Stepped in it hard. <laughs> hard. Showed up that Sunday. 
people approach me, well, pastor, read that article. I didn't know you were so liberal. I was going to be a part of your new church, but now I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with you teaching these sort of values. I said, what values? Loving your neighbor? Like, like treating others better than yourself? Those are Jesus' actual words. Like, I can't, what do you want me to do? Now, listen, how that plays out for you when you fill out a ballot might be different for each one of us. But our motivation, our cause, the reason why we would do that, wherever we may land in the spectrum, is out of love for our neighbor. Does that make sense? Okay. And see, we'll only do that. We can only have that perspective if we do it recognizing what our king has done for us. If we do it recognizing what Jesus has done for us. See, when you see that Jesus went to the cross for you, that Jesus abandoned all of his authority, all of his power, all of his comfort, all of his rights, he surrendered all his rights, allowed himself to be imposed upon by sinful men nailed to a cross for you, for your sins. You might be brought into a right relationship with the Father, that you might be brought into his kingdom of grace and peace and love. You see, when that truly sinks in for you, it only makes sense that you would engage this world as a servant of all. And so let me say this, it makes no sense for a Christian to demonize people because the gospel doesn't say that the people on the left are the enemy. The gospel doesn't say the people on the right are the enemy. The gospel says the enemy's right in here. And yet God has embraced me. And yet God has chosen me. And yet my king laid himself down for me. And so now I'm free to love others. Now I'm free to serve others because my king gave of himself for me. So I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's not a Christian uh, recently. And uh, I was talking to him about, I was like, you know, why, why aren't you a Christian? It's, it's really fun. We're the coolest. And uh, no, we're not. <laughs> but I was, like, I was like, why aren't you? And he, and he said one of his main reasons was because of how he's seen the church engage the political realm. And he said, I'm so turned off by the posture of the church and politics that I can't even fathom spending time with most Christians. And so Acts Church, let me just tell you, you may lean left, you may lean right, but for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of people that are far from him, man, let's engage our citizenship and our politics like our true king as humble servants. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you that you've come for us. That you've adopted us into your kingdom as your citizens. Lord, teach us to live faithfully in that. Teach us to engage our world, to engage our nation in things that matter, that are important. But teach us to do it with love and humility because we recognize that our primary allegiance is to you. Lord, may nothing get in the way of that. Thank you for coming for us, for giving of yourself for us. We'll pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.